0: Well, this is absolutely brand new territory. First of all, doing the uh, parent and baby dedication was a trial run. We had no idea how long that would take. And uh, that leaves me in a very unique situation because, according to my watch, it is exactly 25 till noon. 25 till noon, and we finish this service at noon. And being in the American culture that we are in, this isn't like some other island cultures where noon just means sometime around noon. Uh, You let me know that noon means noon. You start to give me the signals. So we have 25 minutes, and uh, I am in a total quandary about what to do. But take your Bible and go to Matthew chapter 6. Because when in doubt, just go for it. That's my motto. And uh, we're going to try to get as far as we can this morning. There is a real wealth of information here that I've been feeding on. I've been convicted by this week. Many of you have mentioned to me that this beginning in chapter 6 has been a particularly pointed part of the Sermon on the Mount, and I would echo that with you. This has been hard-hitting in my own life, and uh, I've just been richly blessed by this new section that we've begun in chapter 6. If you're visiting, we're working our way through Matthew, and uh, we're particularly right now in the middle of what's called the Sermon on the Mount, and most of you probably, even if you're not New, you're not a regular here, it's not new to you, that Jesus taught a sermon on the side of a hillside and it is one of the um, most famous messages that he taught. This is the Sermon on the Mount. We know the Beatitudes, maybe you've heard of those. Some people have coined those as the New Testament, uh, the new Testament version of the Ten Commandments, this whole part of the sermon. Uh, we have emphasized in our study of these chapters, chapters 5 through 7, the whole, the continuity of this sermon. Um, Our desire has been, from the very beginning, not to allow this to get diced up into particular sections that would leave us with an abbreviated or a shortcutted view of what we find in these chapters. They are a unit. They come as one. Jesus taught intentionally. He knew exactly what was coming next as he worked through, logically, what he wanted to communicate to those multitudes of people that were there in front of him, on the mountain, We came all the way through chapter 5 dealing with the demands in the latter part of that chapter, the demands of the kingdom citizens, those who are followers of Christ and many of you no doubt profess to be followers of Christ and we have been examining our hearts and lives here according to the words of our king himself on what it is to be a citizen of his kingdom, what it is to be a true follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. What does that mean? that means in the beginning of chapter 5 that our hearts have been transformed. We have a new character that is fleshed out in us. And that means that in chapter 6 we have a particular warning given to us because of our pursuit of worshiping our king. There is a particular danger that lurks around the corner for those of us who are members of this kingdom, who are citizens under the reign of this high king this great King, our Lord Jesus Christ. And that warning, that danger, is given to us in the form of a warning in verse 1 of chapter 6. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. To boil it all down for you, chapter 6, in these first three major sections of chapter 6, are dealing with the danger of hypocrisy in our public displays of worship. This is convicting in and of itself because we know how hypocritical we can be, don't we? We know how much we can put on a particular front when what's behind that front is anything but what it looks like. I'm a big fan of Old West novels, particularly Louis L'Amour and Old West movies and the Old West in general. And the Old West was categorized by cities that were made up of false fronts. It looked like a huge building that you would have seen in New York City. But in fact, it was just a tent that went behind it. And on the front, they had built a shell that looked like something that it wasn't. It looked like it was two stories. It was only one. It looked like it was brick. It was made out of wood. It was a false front. And what we're studying here is the danger for us as believers to bring to our worship a false front, an outward shell, an external appearance that looks right, that sounds right, that talks right, but is anything but right and is anything but rewarded. That is the danger. And those who are committed to this lifestyle, those who know nothing but hypocrisy, will not only receive no reward in a heavenly sense at the Bema, they will receive no reward at all. In fact, they will never reach the famous seat. They will receive punishment for their hypocrisy. I read this week in a commentary by Lloyd-Jones, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, and I can recommend that if you enjoy reading um, sermons on particular passages. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones on the Sermon on the Mount is a must-read, two thumbs up. Uh, it is a good one. And it's an inexpensive one. You should buy it if you want to study this section in more detail. But he was, he was outlining in the beginning of the verses that we'll study this morning just the prevailing nature of sin. I mean, sin will follow us anywhere. Sin goes where we don't think it possible for it to go. Because we're sinful people, because we have been saved, but we still retain a sin principle within us. That is, our fleshly bent is towards sin. We have a new heart, we've been transformed, and yet we battle now with the reality of sin still existent in our lives. And because of that, and because of its pervasiveness in us, sin goes everywhere we go. Sin goes to church with you every Sunday. Sin goes to work with you on Monday. Sin goes to your family outing on Saturday. Sin goes everywhere you go. Sin goes when you're having fun. Sin goes with you when you're struggling through an issue. Sin goes with you when trial strikes your life. Sin goes with you when you receive blessing and abundance. Sin is everywhere. And for the believer, for the kingdom citizen, as we've categorized them here in this section, for the kingdom citizen, sin even infiltrates the public worship. And it is our danger That we would be sucked into a hypocritical external worship. That our lives would be a false front worship. That our existence here on the Lord's Day each week would be some external form that has no internal reality behind it. And there's no time this morning. If you're new with us, there is no time. Whether you're familiar or not, there is not enough time for us to work through what we have this morning. But I want to at least get familiar with what we're going to come back to next Sunday morning. We have looked at that warning in verse 1, and then we have examined last week, verses 2 through 4, where we see the first uh, illustration that Jesus gives of that kind of hypocrisy, of the danger for His people, those who follow Him, to put on a false front. And it isn't giving was last week in verses 2 through 4, when we are giving to the poor, the hypocrite gives with a motive to be seen. That's why they give. That's what's behind their giving. They give so that they can be recognized for their giving. And the Lord Jesus says, if that's your motive, then congratulations, you have your reward. All that you'll receive has been received. Hopefully somebody saw you and patted you on the back. Because if that was your motive, that's all you're going to get. Then he moves to the second and longest illustration of this danger of hypocrisy in our lives, in our worship, in our public worship, and he addresses the issue of prayer in verses 5 through 15. And if you're like me, you've read verses 5 through 8 at an amazingly fast pace because you know that when you get to verse 9, you get to read what is known as the Lord's Prayer. Such familiar territory for even those who have never Cracked open a copy of God's Word. Most people know that the Lord's Prayer exists. Well, here it is. And it's in this context, in this danger zone, that Jesus gives us what is known as the Lord's Prayer. What probably should be known as the Disciples' Prayer. Or for our purposes, the Citizens' Prayer. Because it is not the Lord who is praying this. He is commending us to pray in such a way. So let me read from the first part of this illustration, beginning in verse 5, and I'm going to read through verse 15 just to set the table for what will become weeks of study in the life of prayer for us as God's people. Beginning then in verse 5, you can read along in your copy of the word. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you that they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your heavenly Father or your Father forgive your trespasses. This is the danger zone of public worship in prayer. And this is the particular aspect that we're going to examine for the next couple of weeks. I don't know that there's anything else in the Christian existence, no matter how connected you are to the church, to God's body, here on earth. I don't know how connected you are to Christian people, but it seems that there is nothing more universally convicting than to discuss our prayer lives. I mean, to get really open and honest, to get real down and dirty about prayer is a very convicting subject. Most of us would readily raise our hand, I need to do better in prayer. Right? I mean, would you agree with me? I need to do better in prayer. I'm publicly confessing before you, I need to do better in prayer. And I'm sure that if you have a desire to please God, if you desire to strengthen your relationship to God through Christ, that you also would echo that concern, that confession. And yet, part of the problem, no doubt, lies within our own existence. The reason, one of the reasons that we don't pray, or we don't pray the way we should pray, is because we do not have an awareness of our need. Okay, so just as by way of introduction, let's just get this out on the table. One of the reasons that you and I do not pray as we should is because we see no reason to pray. Prayer is the breath of dependence for the Christian. It's like breathing. It is a, it is a voicing of my awareness that I am incapable of accomplishing what I must accomplish. I am incapable of changing the circumstances that I desire to see changed. I'm incapable of of doing anything that would bring pleasure and glory to my Father in heaven. The, I, am, I am unable to do those things. Therefore, I must fall on the one who is able to do those things. And that looks like prayer. And we have to come to grips with the fact, as we begin our study here, that the elementary question of do I pray or does my prayer life need improvement begins with an evaluation of our own heart attitude because foundationally we don't pray because we see no need for prayer we do believe that we can change the circumstances we do believe that we can improve what needs to be improved we do believe that we can accomplish what needs to be accomplished we are preached to consistently that if we just believe in ourselves we can do it whatever it is and folks let me just shatter that right here and right now Whatever you believe does not actually equal what can be done. Some of you, I don't care how much you believe you can play in the NBA. It's not going to happen. You can believe it all you want. You can believe it so much that you give your life to it, but it won't happen. Some of us, okay? Let me just humble myself. Some of us, doesn't matter how much we believe it, doesn't matter how much we pursue it, it's not going to happen. Some of you, no matter how much you believe it or pursue it, you're never going to be the businessman you think you're going to be. It's not going to happen. But your world preaches to you that you can do whatever you need to do. It preaches to you a gospel of self-sufficiency. And self-sufficiency in the Christian kills prayer. It eliminates it. We're struggling with prayer. One of the primary reasons is the heart that must be present for prayer to exist for good prayer to exist as we'll see in our text the other problem that we struggle with when it comes to prayer is the idea that god is more concerned about quantity than he is about quality so a lot of times when we talk about i need to be better in my prayer life what we really mean is i need to set the stop clock and i need to do more praying i need to pray for longer i need to pray more but folks god is not nearly as concerned about the time spent in prayer as he is with the quality of the interaction that he receives from you. Prayer is your communication with your Heavenly Father. Think about this in a human relationship standing. You need to be better communicators as a couple. Let's say one of you, hypothetically, of course this isn't true, but let's say some of you men need to be better communicators with your wives. Okay? that was generally a feminine laughter that I heard. Okay? So I understand. Some of us do. All right? Let's say that that's the case. And let's say that God convicts us, and we know that as those who lead our homes and love our wives and give ourselves for our wives, we want to commit ourselves to improving where we know we need to improve. And so we want to be better communicators. Let me guarantee you one way that you will not improve your communication, and that is to say to your wife, Babe, I know I need to be a better communicator. So now, from now on, on Thursday evenings, I'm giving you an hour and 15 minutes. And we'll start the clock. We're going to sit down on the couch, and you've got that much time. Hey, I'm doubling the time we usually have, okay? Surely that's better. There will be something artificial. There will be something less than appealing to your wife about being on a stop clock. At least that would be my experience. Not that we have a stop clock, but that would be less than appealing to my experience. Beloved, if that were the case. So we have two sides of, of the issue. One is that our hearts are bent against prayer because we're bent towards self, self-confidence, towards a belief that we can do whatever it is we need to do. And secondly, we're, we're really damaged in our pursuit of prayer by the idea that prayer is mostly a quantity issue, not a quality issue. And so we're driven by this guilt that I don't pray enough Verses. I don't pray rightly enough. Now, surely, some of us need to pray more than we do. But first and foremost, as the Lord Jesus will address in these verses, we need to pray rightly before we pray more. Otherwise, we're just adding to what is already deficient in our spiritual walk. Okay, so this morning, we're just going to start. We're just going to start down the journey... It's going to be a study trip on prayer, and I'm jumping in, and I trust you will as well. Our professor is Jesus Christ. Our textbook is His Word. Our tutor on this trip that's going to walk along with us and help us apply this is the Holy Spirit. And the growth that will come through this, the great at the end, is the glory of God. He'll receive the credit. We will, in His gracious way, receive a reward from Him, which we will turn back in praise to our Savior in the last day. Okay? That's our study trip. That's where we're heading, and this one will no doubt hurt. There will be tests that will hurt us, and yet the fruit I trust will bring glory to God and will be for our benefit. It will be for our good. Okay? No doubt about the context. No doubt about the contrast that we find in that context. This is reality, authenticity, credibility, if you will, versus hypocrisy. The accusation of the church today, number one accusation of the Christian church by those who are not a part of the Christian church, those who do not associate with the body of Christ. Number one accusation is the church is full of hypocrites. Absolutely. The church is full of hypocrites. And I trust that as we interact with this passage, that we will have fewer, fewer hypocrites. Because I I'm concerned that that accusation has more validity to it than we're willing to admit. Because hypocrisy, sinful hypocrisy, looks a whole lot like genuine worship. The difference is the heart that goes behind it. So I trust that we will weed out the hypocrisy of our own hearts and our own lives and we will see our church freed of hypocrisy at the level at which it exists at this point. Let's begin then the way we did last week with the assumed activity, and that's prayer. We'll look at the major heading of prayer, and just briefly, and then we'll look at two components from verses 5 through 8. I think your note sheets is 5 through 6. We're going to expand that out with much less time than we ever have to 5 through 8, and I'm just going to give you a basic overview, which we're going to come back to next week and examine together. But let's start with what is assumed of us in verse 5. And when you pray... When you pray. This was the same assumption that happened last week. When you give. And this is the same assumption that's going to happen when we get to the next illustration. When you fast. And it begs of us right at the outset to just stop reading. Stop. Because we want to just pat ourselves on the back and say, Yeah, I got that part. When I pray, I need to pray in a certain way. Well, no, let's stop first. And let's actually ask ourselves... Am I praying, or am I doing something other than praying? David and I were talking this morning, and we were concerned because so much of this deals with public prayer. And yet we have to do this, we have the opportunity to do this, to lead in prayer each and every week, and yet this burden is placed on us in such a special fashion here. When you pray publicly, privately, without words spoken, Maybe in your brain, when you're laying on your bed and you're praying, when you're taking a prayer walk and you're talking audibly to the Lord, whatever it is that you're doing, when you're at the bedside praying for a friend or a relative, this is the assumed activity of those who would follow Christ. This is the assumed activity of those who are kingdom citizens. Prayer was the consistent pattern of the Jewish people, the followers of Yahweh God, the one true God. They prayed three times a day, just like we see Daniel doing before he gets chucked into the lion's den. This was their pattern. They prayed. Prayer was a consistent part of their existence, probably more so than many of us. Many of us would be improved if we were praying three times a day. And by three times a day, I don't mean thank you for this breakfast, thank you for this lunch, and thank you for this supper or dinner, or whatever you call it here. And really, folks, we have to be honest. A lot of times, our prayer boils down to the time we spend praying at a meal because we feel compelled to, though that is not commanded of us. We are are commanded to eat with grateful hearts, which is why we give thanks when we sit down to eat. It's not commanded of us. And yet the assumption here is that our lives are patterned with prayer. Prayer is an act of dependence, not independence. Prayer is an act of submission to a sovereign. It admits that you are under someone else. Prayer is a communication with the Creator God. And prayer is to be expected of those who know Him for who He is and see themselves in comparison to His greatness. This is the assumed worship activity of the people who follow Christ. So this is where we have to start. Do I pray? And when and why do I pray? And how often do I pray? These are the questions that we're going to look at in these verses. Now, if the answer to these questions is yes, I do pray, then we must still press on in our examination of our lives because we find immediately in verse 5 that prayer is not good enough in and of itself. Not unlike last week. When you give, and we would think, hey, I gave. I gave to the Lord's work. That's enough, right? No, that's not enough. Because for the kingdom citizen, giving, praying, fasting, singing together, whatever it is that we do in public worship, even fellowshipping together, is not enough because our king is concerned first and foremost with our hearts. He's concerned with the inward before he's concerned with the outward. And the outward that is done apart from an inward reality is nothing short of hypocrisy. And hypocrisy is sin. So with the assumption of prayer in our life, which all of us have to come to grips with, is that actually a right assumption of you and of me? Now we move to the danger of specific kinds of prayer that will leave us without reward. Verse 5 says, You must not be like the hypocrites when you pray. Why? What's the description For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. Let me just give you the overarching headings that we're going to look at in verses 5 through 8. First of all, we're going to see the hypocrite's habit. The hypocrite's habit. We'll see it in verse 5 and in verse 7. The hypocrite's habit is vain declaration. It's vain in two senses. It's vanity. Because they want to be seen. And it is vain because it does nothing. In verses 6 and 7. The hypocrite's habit is vain declaration. And then we'll see the kingdom's contrast is vital living dialogue. Prayer is different for the believer. The one who has had a heart transformation. Than it is for the one who is praying simply for the eyes of those around them. And this is our danger. The hypocrite. If we were to boil this down, the hypocrite wants to be seen as if he or she is holy. And the kingdom citizen wants to be seen by God as holy. The kingdom citizen wants the reality of his life to be obedience, wants the reality of his existence to be righteousness, the character of God put on display. The hypocrite just wants to look like it so that others will think highly of him or her and this is what jesus addresses in verses 5 through 8 we're not going to jump into these verses because of time but let me put the emphasis where it needs to be we find when we're talking about this issue of prayer we'll do well to ask ourselves a couple of very painful questions d.a carson gives us this quote we will commend jesus point better We'll comprehend Jesus' point better if we each ask ourselves these questions. Do I pray more frequently and more fervently when alone with God than I do in public? Do I pray more frequently and more fervently when I'm alone with God than I do when I'm in public? Do I love the secret place of prayer? Is my public praying simply an overflow of my private praying? If the answers are not enthusiastic affirmatives, we fail the test and we fall under Jesus' condemnation. We are hypocrites. So pointed. So painful. We're not even getting into the details of what's here. Let me wrap this up for you and just give you an overview conclusion to these verses and to this whole section, this theme of hypocrisy in prayer prayer is to be a part of your life and i trust that you are praying but praying alone talking out to god is not enough it must be prayer from a heart motivation that is in line with what it is to be a kingdom citizen what is it in line with the character change that god has brought about in our hearts prayer is still a heart issue with the king not any prayer will do this is critical. This is very critical, folks. There are some of you who pray selfishly on a consistent basis. God really has become to you the genie. And prayer is the bottle that you rub. And if you pray hard enough and if you say the right words enough times, you're, you're really confident that poof, God will appear out of the bottle and he will give you whatever it is that you want. Not just any prayer will do. Some of you pray out of sheer duty and compulsion to somehow earn merit, the heart is the issue with the king. Real prayer is private prayer and meaningful prayer, and it flows from a real relationship with the sovereign himself. Now let me just put this at the forefront. This is critical for all of us, whether you're never with us again outside of this morning, because you're visiting. Let me speak plainly to you, and please assume My love for you and my desire for the truth to be spoken to you in love. Those who are marked as hypocrites go to hell. That's the reality of what we find in our scriptures. There is a real place. It is the real eternal destiny of hypocrites. In fact... If you flip over just one page to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, we find a whole group of hypocrites who find out how how tragic their hypocrisy has been. Matthew chapter seven verse twenty one says "Not everyone who says to me, "Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven." but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Did we not go to Grace Church? Did we not sing the songs? Did we not pray the prayers? Did we not read the scriptures? Did we not do the things we're supposed to do? Did we not give gifts? Did we not fast? Did we not do all these things because we were in your name? Here's the tragic conclusion for the hypocrite. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Righteous deeds that are not fleshing out a heart that has been transformed by the righteousness of Christ is nothing but lawlessness because it robs God of the glory that he deserves. Hypocrites go to hell. That's the bad news. That's the truth. And the the glorious truth on the other side of that coin is that hypocrites can be transformed through the gospel and spend an eternity in heaven. Many of us, if not all of us, are recovering hypocrites. We have been transformed, we've been rescued from hypocrisy. If you grew up in a Christian home, quote-unquote, if you grew up in a Christian culture, quote-unquote, hey, for the first time in my life, if you grew up in a Christian town, You have been transformed and you are recovering from hypocrisy, a cultural righteousness. John chapter 3, which is famous for verse 16, has a whole lot of other verses on either side of 16 and talks to us about a specific man. His name was Nicodemus and he was a full-blown professional hypocrite. His hypocritical resume was awesome. And he started to come under the conviction of the emptiness of his righteousness. And he comes to the Lord Jesus and he says, What am I missing? What is it that I'm missing? And Jesus looks square into the face of a hypocrite who is a hypocrite of all hypocrites. And he says, You must be born again. New life must happen for you. There must be a new existence. That happens through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, so that all who believe are saved from the punishment of their sin. How does that happen? How is someone saved from the punishment of their sin? They are saved because by faith they place their confidence in the cross work of Jesus Christ. And the great exchange happens. By faith, they are justified. They are declared righteous. How is that? Jesus at the cross takes their sin Their hypocrisy. He pays the full penalty for their hypocrisy. He bears the full wrath of the Father on Him in their place. And they, in turn, by God's gracious work, receive on their account the righteousness that Christ lived out. They are viewed by God as in standing with the very righteousness of Jesus Christ. There is a massive exchange that happens, and hypocrites who were bound for hell can now be Truly righteous people who are bound for heaven. That's the glory that flows from the good news of Jesus Christ. That is the gospel. And if you're here with us this morning and you're never with us again, please do not miss this. There is no external righteousness that you can do. There is not enough good deeds that you could ever accomplish that would somehow chip away at the debt that is owed for your sin. There's only one way. There's only one way for your debt to be removed and that's as that is if someone steps in who is perfect and dies in your place. And that one, and there is only one, is Jesus Christ. If you'll believe that and if you'll turn and follow him in belief, in faith, you'll be rescued from the doom of your sin and hypocrisy. So what does a non-hypocritical prayer look like? What is a A non-pagan prayer looked like? Well, it looks like what we find in verses 9 through 15. And it looks like all that we have from verses 5 through 15, which gives us a package deal for us to examine our hearts, our lives, before God's Word. So that as the King gives us the description of His kingdom citizens, we fall into conformity and are made more into the likeness of our Savior Himself. That's our prayer. That's what God is doing. If you're here this morning and you are His, He is at work in bringing you more into conformity to the image of His Son. He's making you look more like Jesus today than you did yesterday. And as we study these portions of Scripture, He will be particularly working in our hearts and in our lives in the area of our prayer, conforming us more into the image of His Son. And if you're here with us this morning and He has not... Brought you into a relationship with Himself. If you do not know Him, if you are not a kingdom citizen, if you are a hypocrite. And He offers you freely this morning the gift of the gospel, the good news, if you'll but believe.